Welcome to Spark Your Fire podcast. Content discussed on this podcast is general in nature. Please seek specific advice from qualified professionals. Now, let's start with the quote of the week. It is very dangerous to have a plan B because you're cutting yourself off from the chance of really succeeding. And the reason, one of the main reasons why people want to have a plan B is because they are worried about failing. What is if I fail, then I don't have anything else? Well, let me tell you something. Don't be afraid of failing because there's nothing wrong with failing. You have to fail in order to climb that ladder. Good listeners. Welcome back to the pod. Um, I've got my usual friend, co-host with me here today, John. John, mate, how are you? I'm well, Jazz. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, mate. Really good. I'm excited for today's episode. Something special. We haven't done this before. And the person is really special as well. He's been on our podcast before. Um, Pete, Pete Wargen. Everyone knows him. He's the, he's the star of Australia. Uh, but <laughs> Pete, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm not sure I can live up to that introduction. But we'll see how we go. <laughs> uh, Pete is... Uh, Pete, you're currently in the UK, right? So just for the listeners... He's yes, been, yeah, I've got my. I've uh, been using a virtual background for the last uh, few weeks because um, I'm stuck in Europe. So uh, we'll see. Hopefully, sometime this millennium, I can get back to Australia. Pete, look, thanks for jumping on, guys. Um, there's lots that go, that's going on in the market, and we have been covering as much as we can. But I was really keen to discuss at a very macro level. Uh, few of the things that have that have been happening, but the main point of discussion today. Uh, was uh, one of the famous things that Ray Dalio, who's the biggest hedge fund manager in US, came out with a statement issued publicly uh, late last year or sort of mid last year, which is cash is trash. Holding cash in the bank in current environment is pretty much losing all the money in a way, right? Um, and I was really keen to see what you guys think about that particular statement, especially when it comes from a, from a person, a uh, well-known person entity like Ray Daly or Bridgewaters. Um, yeah, well, I suppose the, the, the big picture, um, certainly um, through my adult years, has been the trend, the falling trend in interest rates. And I think if you were taking a really big picture view, there was a famous graph, I think it was the Bank of England that uh, put it together showing how the trend in interest rates since around 1300 has just been down. But of course, through that period, we've had ups and downs. And I can certainly remember my parents um, sitting sitting around the dinner table and talking about um, when the Bank of England was going to hike uh, the base rate from 10% to 12% in a single day. And they were talking about 15%, um, but pretty much ever since. Um, so particularly in Australia, one of the earliest... Uh, countries to adopt inflation targeting, but that's become a big thing around the world now, New Zealand and elsewhere. And since the early 1990s, when inflation targeting uh, became uh, popular, we've just seen interest rates falling lower and lower. In recent years, of course, um, the US, Japan, Europe, interest rates have been stuck pretty close to zero. Uh, since the global financial crisis. Now Australia has joined the club. Uh, so we've got a cash rate effectively stuck at the zero lower bound. And so all around the world, there's a lot of people with this very same problem, and that is that cash in the bank or term deposits effectively pay nothing. 
so look, there's some technical aspects to it in terms of the nominal interest rate and the real interest rate. But I think what an awful lot of people are concerned about is that the interest rate they get from a bank or a term deposit is very close to nothing. And they're very worried about inflation just devaluing their cash. So there's a lot of validity in what he says. Mm-hmm. John, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I agree with Pete. You know, cash is a cash at a negative real interest rate means it's losing value, but it's kind of losing value at a very regular, predictable rate of like, let's say, minus 1%, which is not going to bankrupt anyone. And it's a negative interest rates are designed to, to have you go out there and start, you know, sloshing that money around in the economy, buying goods and services or buying real estate or other assets. So, so when, when uh, Ray Dahlia says something like, cash is trash. And we've heard this before, cash is trash. Uh, What he's saying is uh, as a long-term savings mechanism, cash doesn't work. You need to be in other assets to preserve preserve your purchasing power. But you you do need to be in cash. I mean, imagine not being liquid in March 2020 when the market's uh, crash. So you, you need enough dry powder to be able to deploy deploy funds into those assets that you see as undervalued. So you always need enough cash to um, to be strategically relevant. Um, and I think that that's important. So cash is not trash. But the, the, the old saying is, it's, is cash trash or is cash king? And they're the two kind of things that we hear. And what the, the nuance that I would apply to those sayings is that um, cash flow is king. So cash cash flow is king. Um, cash may be trash as a, as a long-term saving mechanism, but what, what's important is cash flow, not cash itself. And that's where something like real estate becomes very valuable because that recurring passive income is what makes cash king. So it's the cash flow that's king, not cash. Mm-hmm. So he also talked about how we are at the long-term end of the debt cycle, uh, which basically means is when, when if, if you're holding cash or even if you're leveraged with real estate and all, the system is intertwined in a way where uh, whether you're buying real estate or unless it's a hardcore liquid assets like gold, what's the best place? I guess my question is, what's the best place to park your cash? Because when you look at some of this stuff, uh, that's going on in the markets currently, whether it's a stock market, and I know Pete, you actively look at the stock markets. It seems like a lot of these things are currently overvalued, and Australian real estate always gets talked about it being overvalued. Even though on the podcast we uh, do discuss that, yes, the prices in the next year or two will probably end up going upwards. Um, so, how how do you see uh, the markets and deploying cash in these markets? Are we really pushing investors to? invest their money in the market purely because the interest rates are nothing and they have to just park their money somewhere, otherwise inflation will kill it? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess um, so one of the things that, uh, so for people who are mortgaged, one of the things that is particularly popular in Australia is using mortgage offset accounts. So at least your money isn't being lazy, it's effectively earning for you. And if you've got a redraw facility, it gives you some flexibility. Um, and I think, you know, well, John made two really good points there. Um, the, one of the things that, that is important about cash is it gives you optionality. So if, if the stock market falls 40% and you've got cash, then that's a really good thing. It's, it's those opportunities 
that do come around in every cycle. So having some cash is important for that reason. And the other key point is that um, the, the thing with cash is that it's completely uncorrelated to returns from stocks. So um, you can put your money elsewhere, but if, um, if that money uh, fluctuates with the stock market cycle, um, then it may not be as useful. So the thing with cash is that if the stock market booms 50% or if it falls 50%, um, the value of your cash isn't going to change that much. So that, that lack of correlation is very important. Um, but I think as you rightly pointed out, the, the issue that people have got at the moment is they're not seeing value anywhere and they're feeling forced to put their money into other asset classes, whether that's farmland or paintings or Bitcoin or whatever it is. People are just looking for a return anywhere and uh, hence what Dalio was saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, cash is worth what you can buy with it. So uh, you made a good point a couple of episodes ago, Jazz, which is uh, like real estate, for example, is expensive priced in in what? So it depends on what your um, unit of measure is. So real estate is plummeting in price priced in Bitcoin and it's going up in price priced in Australian dollars. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Australian dollar is losing value against real estate and, and, and shares and it's gaining value against electronics or something like that. So, you know, I guess it's, it depends on what the unit of measure is. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm nervous in cash as a long-term kind of savings mechanism. And I think that's why people are looking at other things like uh, index funds in, the, in the, the share market. I mean, most people would much rather save in something liquid like um, a, a Dow Jones or S&P 500 um, index fund than they would in their Commonwealth bank account just because you're going to get at least 4%, let's say, and and probably some capital appreciation. Mm -hmm. So that's great. I mean, the example that you guys gave is great for the people who are holding uh, mortgages or investment property that they can offset it against their saving whatever 3 or 4% uh, or paying off your property quicker. But if it is... If you're not holding any asset, is the best approach in this current market environment where we are at is to uh, go out scouting for some kind of uh, asset class and invest investing your money in that space? Oh, look, it's a personal situation. Uh, I think um, some people would be more comfortable having a, a big cash buffer and sit and wait for opportunities. Uh, younger people might feel um, that with a long time horizon, they want to get out there and look for opportunities. I mean, even within stocks, there are sectors of, of the stock market that are relatively cheap. And there's certainly countries around the world that are cheap. So, Look, it can be done. I guess the the big thing with the stock market is it's become increasingly correlated to what happens in the US over the past 20 years in particular. So if the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. So I think that's the one thing that would give you pause uh, before we go piling 100% into cheap stocks is that uh, we do know if the US comes down, it will bring everything else down in the same direction. So um even though um, you know you don't want to be holding very large pools of cash, most likely, um, I think uh, having some cash available is still a good way to go for a lot of people because when bigger opportunities come around, that's how you generate quicker returns. And read uh, Warren Buffett's newsletter last week. Um, one of the big things that uh, Berkshire has done over the years is always have some dry powder uh, so that when everyone else is panicking, that's 
that's how you pick up stuff that is cheap and multiply your returns more quickly. And, and never bet against America. I think he said that as well. Um, he says that every year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. That's a famous one of his. Um, so so what, what I think is interesting for investors is there's a, there's a real disconnect between the economy and, and asset classes. So once upon a time, the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones used to broadly reflect what was going on in the markets. And then something happened, about, I was going to say 10 years ago, but let's say 2008, when uh, any time there was bad news in the economy, the stock market would go up because the market correctly, I suppose, anticipated um, uh, action by the Federal Reserve every time bad news would come out. And so there's this, so, so the stock market, and I guess the real estate market to a lesser extent, but the stock market is now an inverse, inversely correlated to good news. Um, so when the economy stinks, the, they know that the Fed is going to come in and, and pump liquidity in the, into the market. So it's kind of it's kind of perverse, and th- this is how you get things like uh, income inequality that people talk about, and the Gini coefficients and stuff like that. So that that makes me nervous. Uh, I guess back to your your original question, Jazz, was something along the lines of: Do you have to do you have to be invested in something? Like, do you have to search for an asset? <clears throat> and I would probably say you 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 do because the policy settings are so perverse in this sense. I actually think that you, you, you can't save yourself rich in this sort of an environment. And it's a dangerous environment because you're chasing, whenever you're chasing a market higher, the money that you deploy is going to go into um, second tier or secondary assets. So you're not going to buy good real estate because you can't wait for the real estate to become affordable to you. So you buy crappy real estate. And, and so so I think that when you're chasing a market higher, you make bad decisions. And uh, we live in, a, in an environment that's fairly inflationary, at least from an asset perspective. And I think, I think it's hard to sit on the sidelines and watch the parade go by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. So this year, uh, uh, US has announced 1.9, let's just call it for the sake of a 2 trillion stimulus package, right? And uh, Pete, John and I were discussing this in the last episode, how Michael Burry, who was the famous guy from uh, during the subprime crisis, has talked about uh, US heading towards the uh, Weimar style hyperinflation. Now, when you see this kind of currency being printed, and I'm just trying to tie it back to uh, uh, why cash is trashed to some extent, when you see this kind of money being printed uh, by US and the balance sheet uh, or the M M2 money supply just uh, going ballistic, a hockey stick essentially, are we? Do you see um, anything like hyperinflation scenario in the in the in the in the future? In I don't know whether it's a year or ten years, no one knows it. But I'm just keen to see what your thoughts are and how cash sort of plays its role in that space. Does it lose its value completely? Is real estate the best place to park it, or is something like Bitcoin, which is I know more speculative, is the is the new game? Uh, yeah, a couple of different questions there. I mean, yeah, so I think if you look at the the official measures of inflation, they are pretty benign. So in Australia, they're still well, they've been below two percent now for what five coming on for six years. So. Um, I guess the official measures of consumer prices, we're not seeing any real inflation. And is there a risk of inflation running away? It doesn't look very likely. Um, I think what people are worried about, though, as you rightly point out, is that if 
if uh, central banks around the world are effectively creating money and growing the money supply, then uh, it, there's got to be some inflation somewhere. And a lot of it's been seen in asset prices in recent years. Um, in terms of um, hyperinflation, look, I don't think so. I mean, um, a lot of people were worried about this in 2007, 8, 9, when we saw an earlier iteration of QE and it just hasn't transpired. So I think a lot of people have now moved to the other side of the boat and they're all, uh, they're thinking that inflation risk has gone away. Uh, so that there is, there is a danger for sure of rising inflation. My guess is with more debt around the world that a few interest rate hikes might knock, knock inflation on the head pretty easily. So uh, we'll see. Um, as for cryptocurrencies, I'm by no means an expert and I, I don't want to generate uh, hate mail into my inbox. I get plenty of that already. So, um, <laughs> I, look, I, I guess um, if, you, if you look at uh, the fundamentals that, that actually drive Bitcoin, um, I think statistically it's probably quite likely that it will continue to go higher. Uh, the one thing that um, you need to bear in mind for an asset that doesn't pay an income or produce anything, so to speak, is just the risk of a liquidity crunch uh, because if enough people decide to sell and there isn't a market for it, and we have seen this before in crypto, albeit some years ago, uh, I think that's what you need to be wary of. Um, so I don't see an issue with people uh, playing the game. I just wouldn't make it my main game. Mm -hmm. John, I know we touched on this last week. Anything Yeah. Uh, look, I don't see hyperinflation. Um, I don't see hyperinflation. I see high inflation. And I, my, my kind of general thesis is that what we, what's going to happen is going to be the 70s on steroids, but but that wasn't a hyperinflation. Um, interestingly, I, I, there's a website called shadowstats.com and, and they have uh, like the unemployment rate and the inflation rate measured um, at different definitions and point in time. So, for example, they've got the current inflation rate using the 1980s methodology and the current inflation rate using the 1990s methodology. And if we use the 1980 method methodology, inflation at the moment is 10%. And if we use the 1990s methodology, inflation at the moment is 6%. So it's kind of like, how do you want to measure inflation? Um, at the moment, we measure it in a way that strips out things like food and energy, and and so we have a very low inflation rate. But um, so I think inflation's higher than it's reported. But um, I, I still I still don't I still don't see I don't see hyperinflation. But you know, the, the central banks can create liquidity and they can you know what we call print money or buy treasuries. But after that, they can't really control where the money goes. And the money could go into consumer items like clothing and and food and, and stuff like that. But the the more kind of mature an economy, the more the inflation tends to go into asset prices. So, ten years ago, there was the Arab Spring in, in started in Egypt, and and there was a lot of inflation in those markets. But that inflation went into food. Inflation in the U.S. goes into the stock market. You, you can't control where that where the inflation goes, but. Um, but you know that they that there will be inflation of a kind. So I don't see hyperinflation. I just see kind of the seventies, but a bit worse. Could so be wrong. So how do you guys explain? Maybe starting with Pete. How do you guys explain things like you know what happened with GameStop um, last year? It was Hertz. Now they're talking about Silver Squeeze. 
where it's it's one after the other, uh, the stocks are being picked uh, intentionally. And that's the kind of thing that was seen during the Weimar inflation um, back in 2000, oh, sorry, in uh, whenever it happened in 1929 or whatever it was. Um, how do you guys explain some of that craziness that's going on in the stock markets currently? Isn't that directly related to the stimulus uh, uh, in the space that are being uh, handed over to the uh, consumers? Uh, no, I don't think it's the same thing. I, I think, um, look, in every cycle, the, the specifics change. But the one thing that never changes is, is human behavior. And um, see, uh, John and I were young uh, whippersnappers during the, the tech bubble. But if you remember back to those, those times, um, there were uh, people buying and selling stocks that essentially – um, not only were they not making profits, they were they, in many cases never made a sale or they had no hope of making any revenue. Um, all kinds of crazy stories about you know people paying multiples for uh, Sun Microsystems and Pets.com and and what all that essentially happened was um, it started off with a good narrative, the internet uh, technology, and it's very often technology-driven, these market cycles. Uh, new technology is always a big theme at market peaks. Um, and we saw, uh, I mean, the CAPE ratio is pushing 45, I think, at the peak of the, the tech boom. The FTSE uh, went to almost 7,000. I mean, the FTSE isn't even back at those levels today. So um, I think what we're seeing is not hyperinflation. I just think it's that difficult time of the cycle where, uh, people are seeing friends, colleagues, pe- people in their peer group apparently getting rich very quickly, and they just can't—they can't stay out of it. Um, because if you think back to two, March two thousand and nine, or in fact any, any of the years uh, around then, two thousand and ten, eleven, it, you'd read stories about what happened in the tech bubble and think, how could people have been so stupid? It just seems virtually impossible when sentiment is so low. But of course, after a decade or you know a dozen years now of um, of a bull market, uh, people are just chasing quick returns. Nobody's interested in, in investing for value or dividends or income, and it's just the same behaviours repeating. And when the music stops, it will end in tears for a lot of people. But uh, you can't. Well, a lot of the specifics will change, but you can't change human behaviour. Ditto to all of that. In in the year 2000, I was a young um, equities analyst, um, sort of straight out of uni, and I, I remember at the time <clears throat> there was they, they were always saying that, um, that they were always using the expression new paradigm. It was a new paradigm because of the internet. And I remember after the crash, everyone said, you know, anytime you hear the expression, it's a new paradigm, you've got to run for the hills. Uh, I suppose there's, <laughs> there's some truth in that. Um, it's It's not, it's, you know, it's rarely different this time. Uh, but but look, when when again money gets printed excessively and there's it's it's essentially looking for a home and it goes to all the obvious places first and then as it kind of lingers it it's it's looking for a home in in less um, uh, kind of desirable places and the the analogy that the Austrian economists always give is that if you've got a basketball team and you know you've got five players you pick your best five players. But if then they come to you and say you can pick two more players, you pick the two that you wouldn't have picked in the first five. And that's like investing. If if you've got to deploy money and, and you've got to find a place for it, you're going to find a place. After you've satisfied all the uh, quality investments, you've got to find 
suboptimal investor <laughs> investments after that. Um, y- usually this sort of stuff doesn't end well. But again, I, I don't think that we're looking at hyperinflations. I think it's just going to be, uh, I think it's irresponsible what we're doing, but I, I don't think it's Weimar or, or Venezuela level or anything like that. Mm-hmm. None of us is a crypto expert over here, but assuming if Bitcoin is an asset or becomes an asset class, is it possible that if we look back at it in 10 years' time, in hindsight, that would have been the hyperinflation, the way that asset or the market is going? I mean, from zero uh, to market cap of almost um, silver, which is one and a half trillion, that's a lot. And that's just one asset, or if it is an asset, first of all, that's just one currency or whatever you want to call it, cryptocurrency, uh, forget stocks, forget real estate and all that stuff. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely a potential outlet for the ex- excess money that's uh, knocking around in the system. Um, I think if you're going to term it hyperinflation, you would have to, you would have to uh, think that money in your pocket would not be going as far in terms of uh, buying goods, buying food, going to the cinema, that kind of thing. Um, so if, um, if excess money gets pumped into cryptocurrencies, then, well, I don't think you can call it hyperinflation except within that one asset class. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stand aside from making a prediction on what happens to crypto. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, yeah, we're not talking about Weimar hyperinflation in this instance. I think um, you know, there's always a risk of inflation rearing its head, but I don't think... Um, yeah, I, I don't. I think the death of the U.S. dollar has been uh, somewhat overstated. I think. Mm-hmm. So basically, the base case over here is high inflation, Pete. Uh, is that fair to say over the next few years? I don't think so. I think um, look, there, there is there is a risk. So if you look in Australia, um, where's the most likely inflation going to come from? Uh, I think at the moment, if you look at uh, detached housing construction, is absolutely boomed as a result of. Um, the home builder stimulus and low interest rates. So uh, trying to find a tradie, construction costs, especially in residential, there's going to be some inflation there. Um, It's very hard to see that we're going to be back at full employment for um, maybe two or three years. So I don't think we'll be getting much in the way of wages inflation. It would be nice. Um, So, look, uh, I think... um, you know, there is a possibility that in, of inflation risk, but um, I don't know about high inflation. Um, we've been under the target, uh, the official targets anyway, in Australia for uh, over half a decade. So I think it will go up from here because it's very, very low. But uh, yeah, whether or not we see high inflation, I think the jury's still out on that. Yeah, so I think I think Australia's kind of... St- stuck in a, in a bit between a bit of a rock and a hard place so we've, we've got a print in sympathy with the reserve currency with all the other nations because we don't want our currency to get too strong but i think we're also at the beginning of a commodity um boom super cycle something like that and and that's going to put upward pressure on the australian dollar and the canadian dollar and other other currencies like it so we're i feel like there's um there's going to be the, the RBA, I think, is going to move from trying to manage inflation to trying to manage the currency, which is sort of the same thing. And they're going to try to keep the the Aussie dollar in, in a range that they're comfortable with during a commodity boom. That's going to, I think, that they're going to be um, 
have their work cut out for them. I think it's going to be tough for, for the RBA. But it's a good problem to have. Uh, it's a good problem to have. We can already see a lot of the funds, uh, the money that's sort of coming out of the Fed going into emerging markets. Uh, that's usually good for commodities. So I think Australia is actually really well placed. But in terms of the RBA's job, it's going to be managing um, the, the, the dollar, which could run away in a, in a commodity boom. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Pete, on the 10-year yields uh, going up and the yield curve control that RBA is trying to implement? I think, uh, if you're not familiar, uh, the Australian 10-year government bond yield um, had been tracking at very, very low levels, the record lows. Um, I think um, certainly during 2020, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about the depth of the coming recession. As it transpired, Australia managed to, uh, certainly today, has managed to dodge the worst of uh, the fallout from the coronavirus and, um, well, essentially got down to zero COVID. Uh, well, there's a huge amount of stimulus in the economy. So uh, what yields have been pricing is that things aren't as bad as we thought. Um, so we've certainly seen that at, the, at that end of the curve. The shorter end of the curve, the uh, Reserve Bank has got um, yield curve control in place. Um, so we saw uh, for the three-year government bond uh, targeting 0.1%. Um, but yeah, we've started to see some yields uh, coming up further out. And the Reserve Bank is just trying to... Uh, essentially, the Reserve Bank's forecast don't see us back at the inflation target or full employment for a few years. And they're just trying to ensure that that recovery happens now. To date, they've done a really good job and things are playing out better than much better than we expected last year. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just trying to ensure that uh, the borrowing costs don't become an impediment to the recovery. Mm-hmm. John, I know you watch this space as well closely. Yeah, the, the, the 10-year yield's been, I mean, it's always a really good signal to see, you know, what what the kind of market thinks. The, the bond market's the biggest market. It's important to watch it. And uh, on Friday uh, or Saturday morning our time, and it, there'd been a bit of a lead-up, but the 10-year Treasury yield in the US spiked upwards. Most people, I think, cro- correctly to some degree, think that this is uh, are saying that this is a sign of two things. One is that the economy's getting better, and two, that there is inflation. So that they're the two um, conclusions which I think are reasonable, the, but the other side of the, the other side is that the yield is telling us that there's a bit of a higher risk to holding currency. So if yield is also risk, I think that the market is saying if you want me to hold this paper for ten years, you need to pay me more of a, a higher interest rate because this stuff is losing value. Um, so I think that there's a, a currency angle as well. But um, y- yeah. The, the only time you worry about the 10-year te- the yield is <clears throat> when it moves erratically, as it did late last week, um, and that's when you, the kind of the, the central banks tend to step in to kind of stabilise it, which, which has happened since. So um, if it, it, it stabilised, but um, it's generally the conclusion is that it means that there's some really reasonably good economic growth, but I'd also caution us to think that it's also the market pricing in more risk for the US dollar. Mm-hmm. So for an average investor, Pete, who have got their house and maybe 50 to 100K sitting in their saving account, based on the current market conditions and what we have discussed, and this is not a financial advice, but just keen to hear your thoughts, right? Um, how would you play with that money? 
Um, well, there's two lines of thought. One is um, some people take the view that, that you should, um, if you, assuming you're not going to do property with that money, uh, some people would say uh, just ignore what's going on um, at all times and just keep buying stocks at every available opportunity just by uh, buy an index fund, and over the long run, it will do just fine. That, that's one approach, and there's nothing wrong with that approach if if that's the route you decide to go down. The second, um, a second uh, variation on that approach, if you're going to do stocks, is to um, put together a, essentially just a written plan and just say, right, um, what am I going to do at various valuation points in the market? Um, and if you take the view as I do that. Um, stock markets are uh, richly valued in the US, you might decide um, still to have some investments in some of the, the cheaper markets around the world, like the UK for me is a good one, uh, but you would still want to have some cash available in case um, the US takes a turn lower, which it will at some point. So um, it's really down to personal choice and personal circumstances. I don't think one route one approach is right and the other is wrong. I think the most important thing to do is pick an approach and stick with it. John, mm-hmm. sure. buy, buy gold? Buy gold, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'd say is if if you, like investing your education is the first thing. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but if you run a business, I would say invest in that because, you know, the business is the best way to generate cash flow. In terms of, in terms of what to invest in, I mean, I personally always like, uh, tangible physical assets or hard assets, and the, that's usually real estate, uh, which gives you cash flow. Uh, precious metals, just for pre- preserving uh, purchasing power. You, and you could throw Bitcoin in there. I think a lot of people consider that a hard asset. I'm in two minds about it, but I, I would be, um, I would, I'd be. I think I think real estate's always a good always a good thing to, to own. Um, it, it's sort of like you you just want to own things of value and you can overpay or underpay for things of value, but you still have to own them. So real estate's an example of something that you just ought to own um, and your entry prices will be different. Sometimes you'll overpay and other times you'll underpay and you won't know that until later on, but it's still a, a, a thing of true value, a, tr- a true representation of wealth and I think there's always a place for real estate. Mm-hmm. Pete, does it concern you at all that real estate in Australia uh, is at a point where it's relative to other countries, it's pretty expensive. I know that interest rates are currently at zero and the investors listening to this probably understand all that stuff as well. But do you think it's real estate in Australia is now really getting to the point where after this, I, I'm, all I'm trying to figure out is where the growth is going to come from. Let's assume this cycle is over. Yes, it sees a 50% growth or whatever it is. Interest rates are at their rock bottom. Uh, don't see how they're going to go up. Every time they try to, it's the, the lever has to be pulled down again. Um, where do you see this ending? Uh, well, every asset class has cycles. That's just unavoidable. Um, it, stocks have a cycle. They've gone from... Uh, essentially 2009 to 2021. My view is we're near the end of that cycle. Um, I can't tell you when it will end. But the same applies to real estate. And I I think in 2020, John was one of the loan voices saying, um, and my clients will testify the same, is that if you cut interest rates to zero, property is going to boom over the next few years. Um, it wasn't a popular view, certainly around April, May, June, a lot of our clients uh, put their property searches on hold and are now probably wishing they hadn't. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that property will just go to the sky. What it does mean is that at some point you'll reach the peak of a cycle and then uh, things will calm down again, supply will tighten, we'll need some wages growth. You know, it, it, all of these things, they just go in a cycle. Um, so, uh, and coming back to your points on interest rates, well, I know we've seen that downtrend in place for 700 years, but within that, Within that 700 years, there have been ups and downs. Um, so, um, you know, in Europe, we've seen mortgage rates go much lower, even than Australia has seen to date. So, um, it's very hard to predict where these things will go. Um, I think with with real estate, a lot of the uh, the usual principles apply. You need to have a 10 year time horizon. You need to not get involved in a buying frenzy and overpay, and you need to buy quality. So. Um, yeah, look, I think it'll be a strong few years for property, but then at some point, valuations will get too stretched and it will peak out just as it does in every cycle. Mm-hmm. John, I'm sure your answer is going to be, if not real estate, then where are you going to get the yield from? Is that right? <laughs> well, that, that, that's true. So you need cash flow when you're investing and uh, real estate's a very reliable place to put your money. Um, I mean, so, so there's a lot of concern about the velocity of the, the price increases. So real estate has bounced back very, very quickly. So the concerns in the market aren't the level of real estate prices. It's the speed in which we got from, say, October last year to here. That's happened very, very quickly. Um, so if we had an, a, a slow and orderly increase in, in real estate prices, so say 5% per annum, I think that we would be fine. But the property prices for Sydney in February went up at two and a half percent so that that's very very quick um because otherwise we're just above the 2017 peak and real estate didn't do a great deal over the last four years so there's been a bit of a catch-up but we're we're seeming to blow past it whether or not real estate's expensive or not it's always a little bit of a hard thing to get your arms around because it's always just based on what someone's prepared to pay um and real estate's easier to value than something like gold or bitcoin but it's still it still goes through cycles, as Pete quite rightly said. Um, I mean, I, I, I think people buy real estate based on the affordability of the repayments, not at the price. Uh, so we always talk about, we always used to talk about rather these measures like how many um, years of income, of the average income does it take to buy a house? That's not so relevant anymore. What, what's relevant is the percentage of your income that goes to the repayment. And at the moment, it's quite low. So I can see this running for a little bit, um, not every part of the market's r- running higher. So, you know, units are still uh, lagging a little bit behind. So it's not going to be the market. It's, uh, real estate's a very localised game. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's responding to, to lower interest rates and it's going to keep uh, running for a little bit longer, I would have thought. Nice. Guys, I really enjoyed the chat, to be honest. Uh, Pete, we've put you in, in the same group as, like, John Farnham and uh, Daryl <laughs> Summers, I'm trying to think of other Australian legends. <laughs> English born in my case, though. Yeah, I yeah. suppose Jimmy Barnes has Would some you... uh, European roots. <laughs> uh, Pete, anything that you would like to leave listeners with uh, that we haven't covered? Um, yeah, I think. Um, well, I, I think a lot of the there's a lot of noise around at the moment, but um, I just think you know, when, whenever it comes to your approach, you need you need to have some kind of systematic approach or a written plan. I think um, it's very hard to make decisions on the hoof and that's when people make emotional and bad decisions. I mean, I, I think just harking back to what we talked about 
um, uh, about the tech boom. And um, I was listening to um, a friend of mine, Gareth Brown from uh, Forager Funds, and he said, uh, he made a really good point. And that is, if you think back to um, 20 odd years ago, we were quite young men at that point. Um, everyone from uni students to uh, factory workers, taxi drivers, everyone was piling into stocks and tech stocks and um, just you know doing crazy stuff. But the thing is, we were young back then. You know, young young people who could afford to uh, speculate, take a loss. See, now we're in middle age, married with kids, and yet we're seeing a lot of people in our own peer group, people who can't really afford to make financial mistakes, loading up their portfolios with, in his words, utter dog shite. Uh, that's concerning. Uh, I think it's um, you know, when everyone else around you is getting rich, the temptation is to try and uh, catch the same wave, but just try and have a, at least try and be sensible and have a, if you're going to speculate, do it with a portion of your money, not, don't make it the, the main game. Mm-hmm. Sean? I think, I think uh, that was the perfect way to end it, actually, Pete. That, that was uh, sage advice. Mm-hmm. So educate yourself as a key, as always. Well, guys, really enjoyed the chat. I would love to uh, do it again in a few months. I'm sure there'll be other topics or other things that are happening in the market. There will be another GameStop or there will be another story with Bitcoin or whatever it is. Uh, and, and we'll take it from there. To the listeners, none of this is financial advice. Uh, play safe, stay safe, don't over leverage, like always, sit over the podcast. And we'll see you guys when we'll see you. Cheers.